Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Boothcast. Now, Boothcast today is brought to you by Vicobi Ocean Performance. Uh, these guys have been working with me for the past eight years, and I just know I've got the best gear on when I'm out in the water, no matter what conditions get thrown at me. I'm going to be either warm, I'm going to be cool, I'm going to be sun protected, I'm going to be safe. And these guys have basically everything you need when you're out in the water, whether that be on OC1, a surf ski, sailing, stand-up paddling, um, you name it, they've got the right gear for you. So if you want to find out more, please check out vicobi.com. Hello and welcome to Boothcast. On Boothcast, I speak to people who inspire me about sport, business and the winning mindset. Today on Boothcast, I have a very special guest all the way from Thailand. He is the CEO of Cobra International, which basically makes a lot of the boards that each one of you out there paddle on in the stuff industry, but they also are involved in a lot of other different industries. So Daniel is here to tell me all about it. So thank you for coming on. Hi, Woody. How are you? Good afternoon. Good, thanks. <laughs> um, yeah. can, you tell us, can you tell us a little bit about your background um, and where you grew up and, and what you studied at university and what sort of led you to being in this role of CEO at Cobra? Um, sure. Uh, I grew up in Thailand. Um, my father, uh, Boropan, has been the one who had uh, started Cobra International together with his uh, friends. Um, back in 1978, so that's 42 years by now. Yeah. Um, he got a he got two German friends uh, uh, with him back then who um, taught him windsurfing, and they together came together, started uh, building their own windsurf board because what they can get their hands on in the market back then wasn't good enough. Yeah. So um, uh, my mother is German. My father spent uh, seven years in Germany and uh, brought my mother back uh, from, from Germany, from Hamburg. And uh, therefore, I actually grew up speaking three languages, um, German, uh, English, and, and Thai. Uh, me personally, um, I, I was raised here in Thailand, uh, went to a very normal Thai school, um, did my degree in engineering, industrial engineering, so um, factory management here in Thailand and uh, spent uh, two more years in Germany doing a master degree in production engineering together with another master degree in management in the same time. Um, and then came back, um, started working in the factory. Whew, <laughs> I, I ran around the factory when I was a child already. Yeah. Um, I remember sometime in high school was in there uh, my father asked me to do um, translation of, uh, of uh, composite uh, books into Thai language from, from English. Uh, I did my internship in the factory, standing in the line, actually um, shaping some foam for windsurf boards, uh, taking time studies, uh, finished my university here in Thailand and then spent about six months working in a factory. A uh, few people back then alongside um, JJ, Shong uh, Shark de Boucher, the uh, golden hand, uh, uh, famous for his windsurfing fins, uh, okay. was with us back then. A few other guys. Um, and then I uh, did my two years in Germany, came back and uh, started as assistant general manager. But we didn't have any general manager, so <laughs> it was a bit... Yeah. <laughs> So you were just the general manager without 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 anyone to call to. 
yeah, so pretty much do whatever I want. Yeah. <laughs> so I walked around the factory, um, do, do, do whatever I wanted, um, looked into this corner, that corner. Uh, when I came back from Germany, actually, um, my, my master thesis was about lean manufacturing. And uh, it was about changing our production line, um, which was a big line back then, 1.5 kilometer long, wow. uh, with 800 people in that line, doing 300 boards a day. And uh, nobody had realized that just the distance of carrying windsurf boards through the line, that's 450 kilometers every day. Don't know how inefficient it was. Um, I think yeah. even until today, nobody really um, uh, realized uh, that 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 problem back then. But uh, I turned that down into uh, small lines of uh, 100 meter each. That was my master thesis. So came back, did that for about a year. Um, it took longer to convert, but um, during that year, found uh, that the factory actually had lots of other problems, and. Um, uh, went a uh, step up to my father after about a year, that was in 2005, and told him that, uh, yeah, I think we need to change this and change that and do this, do that. And um, told him that uh, if he liked to, then uh, he can let me do that, but I do need authority. So yeah. next thing I know, uh, next day, my father announced me the CEO of the company. <laughs> and he enjoyed all those um, projects new projects he is still creating still until today yeah so so you still working with your father at the factory every day uh yeah he comes in every day but uh we do have a couple of different um uh, businesses uh okay. and he he tend to enjoys the um uh building up new thing he is very entrepreneurial so um Lots of uh, uh, lots of ideas, lots of new things, yeah. And uh, our job uh, typically run around him, <laughs> chase him, follow him. Yeah. How can we uh, how can we realize what what he is doing? Yeah. Yeah. And so he started that company back in 1978. So it's been going 42 years now, and you've probably been yeah. involved in it since you're a little kid. Um, but what was it like, obviously, back in those days when they were first starting out? Where was the factory and, and what was the process in place when they first started out? Was it like a little shed when they first started out or was it a, a big operation from the get-go? Mm -hmm. um, my, my father's friend back then, the uh, Mosbach uh, uh, brothers, um, Karl and Bert Mosbach, um, Bert was, had, had been the one organizing Siam Cup a windsurfing race here in Thailand. I think first time was 1976 or something like that, using, I don't know which branded boards. Uh, yeah. The board weren't good enough. So uh, he was looking, he spoke to his brother, Karl, who was managing a, a Henkel, um, a German company here in Thailand, and asked if Karl uh, know of anyone who um, uh, would be willing to uh, get into an adventure of start building windsurf boards. Yeah. <laughs> And my father was uh, working with my grandfather in, in uh, selling chemicals and Carl recommended my father. So Bert taught both his brother, Carl and my father windsurfing. And together they started building windsurf boards for the next Siam Cup. Must be for the year 77, yeah. 
and uh, came out well. So in 78, they formed a company and uh, started building windsurfboard for the brand Windglider back then. Yep. And um, very soon after, uh, one or two years, um, they, they came up with their own brand, Cobra uh, Windsurfboards. These boards was from the start made in, uh, in uh, fiberglass, uh, epoxy resin system, vacuum molded uh, with a EPS core inside and um, typically also with PVC sandwich, carbon fiber, all sorts of things uh, from the very early on. Um, the Cobra branded windsurf board uh, became pretty famous in the world around 81, 82. Okay. For, I don't know, four or five years or so. And uh, uh, for being very light back then, very, uh, the boards were really good in, in performance. Um, so that's, that's the start in terms of the, the technology. In terms of a, a shed, yeah, it started out in the garage of a, of a small house, which was an office um, yeah. in, in, in the middle of Bangkok, actually, Sukhumvit 23. Then uh, pretty, pretty early on, they moved into a rented factory uh, just outside Bangkok. Uh, for about nine months and then my father got uh, a piece of land for my grandmother and built a factory there the first cobra factory which um, lasted there until year 2000 when we moved to the uh, current uh, location in uh, amata city shonduri uh, it's yep. an industrial state yeah yeah it's like it's like 50 kilometers south of uh, the center of bangkok or something like that isn't it and yeah, so is that so where your original factory was, it sort of stayed there for the first like 22 years. And then that was where, is that where Starboard's headquarters is thereabouts now? Oh, about. Yeah, it's yeah. just opposite the, um, opposite uh, a small river, a small um, creek. Yeah. Um, it's where their, their, their head office is right now in Taco uh, Lake. Yeah. Um, Starboard actually started the first, uh, the first office from Sven was inside Cobra. Okay. Yeah, he said he's in the he's in the smoking room at, at Cobra. Uh, yeah, he keeps saying that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we provided him with a smoking room. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and yeah. what was what was like obviously that that first um those first twenty years when you were when they were developing different boards was it like straight away they they went from wind glider but then did they start creating different boards straight away like did they start manufacturing for other people or was it just wind glider for that first whole period and then they decided to when did they start to build boards and other yeah. things for other brands mm. um i don't know how long they kept building wind glider boards but as i said uh, around 81 i think it was uh the cobra brand uh came out and they were focusing building cobra branded boards um that went on until 80 eight or something like that 85 88 um yeah. where i i understood there was some sort of bigger quality problem or distribution problem the company almost went bust back then and uh uh so the company had to do whatever i mean uh diversification started there uh car bumpers aftermarket car bumpers um anything you can name anything that can be made uh, signs, yeah. uh, big signs. Um, one uh, interesting product was a uh, crocodile um, for the crocodile farm, uh, a okay. pond for for hatching the, the newborn crocodiles. 
Yeah. And um, yeah, that went on for, I guess, about uh, several years, five, six years. And sometime mid-1990, the, um, uh, a lot of the windsurfing brands in Europe start to move to Asia. So Cobra was one of the factory. There was another one in Malaysia. Uh, there was another one in, in China, at least another one in China. Yeah. And um, the, the Malaysian one failed. The Chinese one never grew. Uh, we were the only one who, who made it uh, successful back then. And uh, with the um, strategy of actually um, uh, building for other brands. So we started, uh, uh, we, we dropped uh, the Cobra brand, I don't know, around 88 or so, I guess. Yeah. Mm. And then around 88, you decided to obviously diversify and you went through hard times and you decided to do all these different types of brands. Um, what was the thinking behind that? And was it, did you, did like your dad expect the company to expand to this level now? Because obviously it was a much smaller operation back in the 80s to, to what it is today. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Never asked him. <laughs> but uh, I guess uh, it was probably partly out of uh, necessity. I mean, to, to create a brand uh, uh, does take a lot of things. And especially back then when windsurfing was still um, in its peaks, uh, big brands, um, you, you need a lot of capital to, to run proper brand and distribution. So I guess when, when the company had the problem, uh, it was uh, out of necessity um, to, to grab onto any opportunity out there. So when the opportunity presented itself, building for other brands, uh, we grabbed them. Yeah. Um, uh, whether it, he would imagine it would have grown this, this, uh, this much, uh, I don't know, probably not back then. That the real growth came around 1990-something. And um, up to 97 was when it really boomed. Um, it was the year when the, uh, when the, cobra, uh, when the uh, economy collapsed here in Asia. Yeah. The uh, Tom Yap boom crisis, 1997. But uh, the Thai baht uh, devalued um, to the US dollar. Um, used to be 25 baht to the US dollar. Uh, became 50 baht uh, yeah. to the US wow. dollar. Okay. Yeah, but that was, for us, was good because uh, we were exporting. So suddenly we were, we were not quite half cost. Um, yeah. We imported materials, but the, the local uh, content um, became half expensive. So from 97 onwards, the company grew um, heavily. From having our own factory, we had to uh, expand into... Um, uh, Cobra 2, Cobra 3, rented altogether, I think there was nine other factories. And uh, uh, to a point where my father then looked for a new place yep. and found this place in the, in the industrial estate and moved there in uh, the companies opened there in August 2000. Yeah, it's, it's a cool story. So when you're expanding and you're, you've got all these other things going on, you come into the company around, well, geez, you're probably 20, 22 at this stage when the company actually moves to uh, south of Bangkok. Is that right? You were born in like, you were born in like uh, late 70s? 79. 79, so you're 41 now. So you were early, yeah. early, early 20s um, and you start getting mm -hmm. involved in your dad's company. You're obviously doing your thesis on engineering, industrial engineering, and you, you wanted to bring in these processes. When did you really start to have some sort of influence on the company and when did you start to sort of have a, I guess an imprint on the on the day the day to day running of Cobra. 
Mm, that was when I came back from, from Germany, 2004. Yeah. The, uh, the half year I spent there working between the, the, the study was more observing, more understanding of what is going on rather than really making an impact. Yeah. yeah. And how many employees does Cobra have and, and what sort of floor space and what sort of production volumes do you do day to day? We, we uh, back then, when, when, when I started running the company, 2005 or so, we peaked out at over 5,000 employees. In 97, just for reference, we were 300 something. Okay. So in a, in a matter of eight years, the company grew, uh, yeah, 15 times or so in terms of employment. Um, we didn't grow um, in revenue terms to the same extent. So um, uh, that is actually a period where, where we grow a lot top, uh, uh, top line, but um, the efficiency went, uh, went down, the, down, down the hole. Um, too, many, too many new people at the same time. Um, training was not fast enough. Um, suddenly everyone need to manage a magnitude more of people. I mean, if you were a supervisor running 10 people, you became a manager running 100 people. Um, yeah. <laughs> within a period of a few years, it's, yeah. it's not that, uh, it, it didn't really work out. <laughs> so, no. um, uh, yeah, so the, the, I would say the last 10 years, and probably still now, it's, it's been a period where we have been consolidating, um, improving our productivity. Uh, we still have to. We, we are at about 2,000 2, and change uh, now, so a bit less than half. Yeah. Doing, supposed to do about uh, the same revenue, uh, probably won't be this year. <laughs> yeah. Because of the, uh, the, the COVID-19, we'll probably um, lose out a bit on, on, on revenue terms. But uh, otherwise, it, it would have been about half the employment today and uh, doing about the same revenue. Yeah, and was it was it like the process of you obviously simplifying the the processes and obviously bringing them down to that hundred meter um, production line? Was that part of bringing the the um, numbers of employees down, and trying to increase revenue, or was that something something else happened in that period? No, we 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 did not really increase any revenue during my period. I mean, not going more than 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 before in two thousand six two thousand seven. Um, we, when, I, when I first got in, end of 2005, I found uh, the KPI for the whole management back then. Everyone was, every month's management meeting, we sold more. It's a record month, shipping 20,000 boards, whatever. Yeah. Um, but I, I was trying to look at it a bit more complete. So pretty much the first thing I found out was the company was over-indebted. Second thing I found out is that uh, we did have quite a bit too high of inventory and uh, accounts receivables uh, to a point where we found that uh, also our customer, uh, one of them in particular in the US, uh, had a stock of what, one year stock of surfboards. Yeah. So at that point, uh, we had to take some decisions. Um, the customer took some for us uh, as soon as he realized and we uh, tightened uh, the uh, accounts receivable. Um, they went from a couple hundred boards per day, um, so to, to 250 with the plan going to 300 boards a day. 
they said that yeah, maybe we shouldn't build anything for them at all for six or nine months. So um, <laughs> was the first crisis the company had. Um, so sales came down um, pretty quickly. Two thousand seven found that yeah. out in two thousand. Yeah, that was, the start of the, that was the start of the GFC, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it was a year before, a year and a yeah. half before. And then GFC hit on, uh, lost another 15% uh, then. And then, uh, uh, and then we, we, we built up since then. Since then, we came up again. Uh, Stand-up paddleboarding did help uh, quite well. Uh, lately, the last few years, we've been dropping... Uh, revenue in water sports again, uh, together with the collapse of stand-up paddleboarding. Uh, but by now, we we started uh, the diversification in the automotive side is uh, doing quite well. So we we did get uh, other revenues that help the company stay, call it level, more or less. Yeah, and when you say the collapse of stand-up paddling, uh, what do you mean exactly by that? Um, I think in in the uh, in every sport you, uh, that we have seen, windsurfing was like that, uh, kiteboarding as well, um, stand-up paddling. Uh, when, the, when, the, when, the, uh, when the sport starts, you, get, you go up a very steep curve of sales, early yeah. adopters, and when all the um, Hollywood movie stars start doing stand-up paddling, everyone need to have one. Yeah. So sales peaked out, and at some point in time, uh, everyone still think it will go on and on. But uh, many people bought one, had one, never ever bought a second one. So the sales come down like that. And then I would say plateau. I would, yeah. I would still sales plateau out somehow uh, lately. But uh, for a manufacturer and uh, for brands, there are two other things that happened. Uh, let's start with the, uh, with the manufacturer first. So when everyone thought it will continue to go up, everyone stocks up. So yep. by the time it peaked, by the first year, sales start to drop. Everyone had shoot for more inventory to prepare for the next season. But yep. uh, sales drop in the same time. They suddenly sit not on two or three months of stock, but maybe six months, maybe one year of stock. Especially when the following year, it go down further, the, yep. the sales. Uh, for a manufacturer, ideally, customer would want us to stop producing for two years. Yeah, okay. So, and it, that doesn't work. We, we cannot no. turn it down like that. What I wanted to say with that is that the impact, maybe sales in the market dropped from the peak to over the years, maybe minus 15% or something for a few years. For the factory, it was much steeper down until it come back up again and stabilized. So that's, that's what I call from a factory perspective, a collapse. And you, um, you compound that with, uh, also many brands going out of business and dumping products in the market. Yeah. Um, plenty of the standard paddleboard brands are no longer there. Uh, many yeah. of the big ones. And, um, they, and they sell their boards for nothing. Yeah, you see that and you're like, yeah. <laughs> makes mm -hmm. it hard for everybody. Yeah. But then the whole, the total inventory is not just uh, the brands that work with us that, that had to uh, reduce the inventory. Uh, their liquidation of other brands who are not continuing. So they go to zero inventory when they had maybe a full year inventory or more, I don't know. Um, and then when that happened, capacity of other factories, uh, of, of all the factories are available. So everyone is trying to dump. Um, everyone tried to cut the corner. 
and then the prices uh, go bottom, uh, rock bottom, and yeah. and you name it. Yeah. So it's kind of like a life, the life cycle of some products. I guess you've got that obviously that exponential growth when something's new and exciting and yeah. shiny and everyone wants it, and mm -hmm. then obviously has exponential growth, and then it sort of comes down that period when you sort of have like. Like there's that late adopted period where people are like, oh, do I, do I need one? Do I not need one? I've already got that one. Do I need another one? And you can't really yeah. sort of, you can't continue that, obviously that exponential growth. It's like, I guess like the stock market every so often it comes back and everyone sort of hurts. Yeah. And then, then when, every, when everyone's an expert, when everything's good. And then when it, when shit hits the fan, then you've got to have the real players who can actually fight it out and actually continue business through that yeah. period. So I guess Cobra's seen a lot of these times over the past uh, 40 years. So it must've been just another one, yeah. especially like now with this COVID-19 crisis, how is Cobra dealing with, with that now? Cause obviously um, I guess manufacturing will be, will be a lot less. Yeah. Maybe just, just one note before that, the, what we see at the moment being the one coming up is uh, actually motorized ports. And yeah. could almost say foiling as well, foiling and motorized. Electric ports yeah. are the two things we, we see right now, and um, uh, finger crossed how long that exponential curve is going. Yeah, but uh, <laughs> yeah, you see you <laughs> see a lot of those up. now on the videos, and guys have got their remote yeah. controls in their hands and they're out foiling. And yeah. I haven't yeah. seen many here, and it's probably not my type of thing. It's kind of like going on a jet ski; it's not really man powered, so it's it's a little bit different. Yeah. But um, it does look really cool and really fun. So you get so you're seeing a lot of that happening right now. Yeah, we, we do see we have a, a lot of customers um, in that sector, actually. Yeah, yeah it, it, I would also say it's more comparable to, uh, to, to jet ski, but not. Yeah, it, it's different. It's different. Yeah, it's, yeah, they're all different. Even like even comparing yeah. stand up paddling and windsurfing and, and foiling downwind or whatever it is, they're all yeah. similar, but they're not the same. Mm -hmm. And that does, they start to diversify into lots of different niches. Uh, from racing um, to uh, foiling or not foiling, and then you still go with recreational, with um, surfing, a surfboard with an engine just to get you to 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 catch the wave easier, or the hardcore yeah. Formula One type guys. There's a a bit of a diversification or a niche um, building up there as well. But again, yeah. let's see how how far that goes. Um, COVID nineteen <laughs> hard. Um, yeah. When the whole world shuts down, beaches are shut, um, the, uh, the shops are, are shut down. Um, for, I would say, for the last two or maybe months and a half, uh, things were very unclear. And to be honest, even right now, uh, I, I don't know what to forecast for the year. We, yeah. uh, we are going with a 35% down full year at the moment, but that's pretty much 50% down for the rest of the year. Um, we had a few uh, strong months in, in, in early in the year, um, but who, who knows? Nobody knows that. Um, start to be a bit more clear. Um, the beaches and shops uh, start to reopen here and there. I think the world realized that uh, it would probably be best to lock everyone down but economically and uh, mentally, that probably won't work. Yeah. The, um, the cost of that will probably be too high. So it's probably seeing how, how we live with it going forward. I don't think uh, COVID-19 will go, go away anytime soon. But mm. the question is just uh, how are these, um, uh, the spread 
uh, peaking out and then coming down and then if it peaks out again maybe there's a smaller lockdown again uh, localized here and there and that's probably um, the international traveling or even yeah, non-local traveling is probably going to be still very difficult yeah. i think all that have a bigger impact on sports one way or the other although outdoor sports as we are i think are at least a little bit more lucky than than other types of sports um which you have to do indoor and this and that 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 will, will, will suffer some more we are working four days a week right now and cut back from all the overtime we had to let a few people go as well so uh, uh and and even that and without overtime and and working four days we still do not always have enough work i hope it will get better in the next uh, one or two months uh, yeah. We start to see some light. Some customers have um, reported that uh, um, uh, internet sales, e-commerce, still went on for a bit. Yeah, um, more than normal for each of them. But uh, compared to overall revenue, it's it's still nothing. And now, with shops started to opening, um, we'll, we'll see how how it goes. So yeah. fingers crossed on that side. Yeah, well, it's been quite good here in Australia. I think we kind of. Not shut down, but we were limited for probably about six weeks. But now we seem to be on the other side of it where our mm. restrictions are getting um, reduced. We have like most, most states have like zero cases each night. And um, yeah. here, in, here in WA, um, I think the local domestic borders probably will be open in the next sort of month or so. And, but mm. the international travel is the hard one. Like, I don't know what we will be doing. Like, I don't know whether I'm going to be able to go to a race. And if I do, then am I going to have to sit yeah. in a hotel room for 14 days? And then it's like, there's a month there because then you got to do 14 days there and 14 days here. And it's like, is that worth it? So it's going to be yeah, a yeah. very interesting period, but it's, it's something we all can't plan for. So we just have to take it as, as, yeah. as it comes. And I think it's, yeah. as you say, I think as the, the governments have worked pretty well, most places they've shut things down for a little bit. And now we're sort of coming out of it, trying to keep the economies going and keep things happening. So yeah, I'm hoping it sort of continues because I, I kind of like, like doing what I do at the moment, which is, which is kind of lucky, but <laughs> I guess at the end of the day, it's a kind of a lifestyle sport, so it may may or may not last forever. But with with Cobra, um, what what type of um, you talk about like windsurfing a lot? But do you have like um, surfing brands and and stand up brands and and different types of uh, watercraft? Like, can you can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, windsurfing was the very first thing we did. Um, we took on surfboards around nineteen ninety five ish, I guess. Uh, with um, SurfTech being the first customer back then. Mm-hmm. Um, Randy French was a former windsurfer, a shaper himself. He was pretty much the one who took the sandwich construction from windsurfing and uh, introduced that into surfing. So uh, surfing is the, the, the second and uh, at the moment also the second largest uh, sector for us. Uh, standard paddling, obviously. We, we got in early on uh, with... Um, I think it was also with SurfTech back then, uh, with the layout boards, for example. Yeah. Um, plenty of other brands. Uh, kiteboarding a little bit. We, we are not so good in making flat boards. So okay. things like a snowboard or, or kiteboards, the, the twin tips, where you basically just press the board. We, we're not too good at those, not as competitive. But we do the, uh, the directional kiteboards. Um, what other things so some wake surf 
uh, kayaks uh, OC1 now, just started um, for a new brand. Probably shouldn't say yet who it is. Yeah, yeah, I don't <laughs> definitely get you looking trouble. for someone. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. Um, jet skis we did for a while, uh, but uh, those race one, standing one, not not uh, sit down. Um, that's probably and then okay and then now all the motorized electric boards. Um, that that is becoming a good thing that helped us right now because none of these brands are slowing down at the moment. Yeah. Um, they many of them have a big backlog, so they took the opportunity to uh, uh, build up inventory and uh, reduce from air freighting to sea freighting and so on. So that has actually been okay. Um, in terms of water sports products, that's about it. In terms of um, hard goods. And then fins, foils we've been doing. A uh, couple of new technologies for fin and foil. Something, something exciting is coming out at the moment. We'll probably um, publicize that soon in a month's time. And uh, also our accessory division. We've been for a long time supplying to ourselves um, stickers, hats, board bags. Um, we recently um, started uh, making sales for the windsurfer. And uh, we'll, we'll start doing other sales uh, soon. Um, so that that side is also a good uh, make us a uh, a one stop service. Yeah, customer can come can get everything in one go. So on water sports side, that's about it. Non water sports automotive is the biggest. Uh, we supply to um, premium European car brands and supercar brands. Yeah, <laughs> I'm only allowed to say we supply Audi and BMW. <laughs> okay. Not allowed to mention the British and the uh, Italian names. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think that's and, good. Um, <laughs> as long as your lawyers are happy with how you talk, that's all good to me. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, motorbikes, uh, Ducati, Triumph, um, uh, BMW motorbikes. Those are the, the key ones. And lately, uh, diversified in a few other directions. Um, we have been doing a few drones. Uh, drone okay. projects, robots, and also into construction. So we just finished a big um, dome or shoulder of a dome for uh, a Middle Eastern company, uh, country and uh, a few other projects in that, that direction. So, yeah, so um, it's, quite a, it's quite a big exercise. And you've, you've still got other ones that you do as well. Like you've got, you've got cars, you've got uh, bikes, you've got every single thing on mm -hmm. the water pretty much. Yeah. And you're doing construction now as well. Like how do, you, how do you manage all these different facets of the business? It, yeah, it's, it's actually when, you come, when it comes to uh, technology, it's not that diverse. So um, we do vacuum molding, uh, sandwich core, any windsurf, surf, stand up pedal board is basically a panel, a three dimensional panel. And uh, those bigger construction projects are similar, they're just bigger. And uh, the automotive side, a bit like the fins and foils, uh, when there's no core, it's just a shell. So uh, when, when it comes down to production technology, it's not that many. But um, I think what, what differs Cobra from other factories is that. We, we did have our breakthrough in the 1990s where my father had uh, brought in professional management. And uh, in the year 2000, when we moved to the new factory, also were forced to implement ISO 9000, a quality control system. Um, those things uh, made, made 
the, the factory not reliable on the owner or few technicians. Like is, I would think still in 80% of 90% of, of other factories. When the owners traveling to see customers, who knows what got changed in the factory. So if, if the owner is not on the shop floor himself, things don't work. This is not our case. My father yeah. has changed that. Um, so uh, our quality system um, and management system has probably allowed us to, to diversify. And um, then that coupled with the, um, with the um, philosophy of my father and the company that we like to explore and, and just this entrepreneurial uh, spirit in the company, but also a spirit of uh, wanting to deliver the best product like the early uh, Cobra boards we made, strong, light, and beautiful are the three things uh, that is common in anything we do in the factory. Yeah, when, but how do you, like, so you've got, you know, obviously the different divisions, but like, what is the different process between, say, making a surfboard or making a SUP to making a, a I don't know, a panel part for a BMW? Like, what is the, what is the different process? Like, is it the same, is it the same composite fibers, but just a different process or is it like different altogether? Mm, um, it's, it's, you can call it the same fiber and the same resin in principle. In, in the end, it's composite. So you put fiber and resin together and it kills and you get a hard part. And then the second half is to make it beautiful, but um, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a lot of labor involved. Um, yeah. But uh, think of it a bit like um, uh, metal work. You can cast metal, you can um, CNC metal, you can fold, you can weld. In, in composite, it's the same. Uh, so the few different techniques we do is uh, hand laminating. So just put like a traditional uh, uh, surfboard manufacturing. We yeah. do something like that. We do, it, we do it with a vacuum bag. We do that same thing with a vacuum mold. So a two-side mold. That's most of our water sports products are made that way anything between those three. Um, there's maybe a different uh, spraying of epoxy happening. Uh, so yeah. either you go by and you go by a, a foaming epoxy spraying. In the automotive, it's uh, what we call pre-preg. So the resin and the fiber are already pre-impregnated, pre-mixed. We have to keep it cold, keep it refrigerated. And then, uh, but you can work a lot cleaner. You cut it to shape, you, you assemble it, you vacuum bag it and then you put it in autoclave or compression mold and then the part comes out. And then the a third big category is uh, what we call infusion or RTM. That's when you put dry fibers or dry material into a mold and then you suck or you um, inject resin in and yeah. then you let it cure. So those are the three big uh, processes we do. What we don't do are things like uh, uh, filament winding or pre-preg winding for like shafts, like uh, paddles for, for okay. stand-up paddling. That we don't do, uh, we don't do or um, bicycles. So anything tubes, tennis rackets, we don't do anything like that. That's all mainly Taiwan or Taiwanese companies in, in China do a lot of those. They, they're pretty competitive there. Um, and there are other ways of manufacturing composites, but we are focusing on these, call it three main ones, lamin hand laminating, um, pre-preg and infusion. So how do you decide which products you manufacture and which products you don't? Like, what, is there a, a certain um, procedure you go through mm -hmm. to make sure that you can 
obviously make it at a cost effective way or is it we well we see an idea and someone comes to you with an idea as a customer and you're like okay we could probably make that or we probably can't how do you how do you make that decision yeah um not not in order but uh, strong light beautiful is number one <laughs> yeah. if someone is is ugly <laughs> i mean if you don't need to care about the look of it typically we are not competitive yeah so um that's one thing then then you go with production process and and the geometry of the parts does play a role again if it's a tube typically we know already we are not competitive we don't have those production process set up um now if if it is something panel like a panel like a shell then we know we we can be competitive then it comes down to volume but uh, we we can do low volume to call it medium volume in water sport it will be high volume already but uh, in outside of, of uh, water sports when it exceed a certain volume like in the automotive when you start talking um, hundred thousand over lifetime then you need to go for a lot more automated the price uh, expectation of customers go down and especially when they have to assemble it in the assembly lines they then it's better to put that kind of factory close to or in Europe basically close to the assembly lines because yeah. there's not labor content in there so yeah the geometry of the part define the, the processes and then the, the volume and then if it's strong, light and beautiful. And then on top of that, if the customer is someone we can work with. <laughs> yeah, so that, might, that comes down to a lot of it, like obviously being able to trust your customer, being able to have a good relationship with them and being able to obviously create the product. But one thing that I did was interesting, like so when you get like a design spec, I assume of like what you, what you need to design, do you go through the whole process and build it from start to finish? Like you. You bring in the the, the um, materials. You make you make it. You have the workers, and then you give the customer the final product. Or does it work in different ways? Where um, sometimes the customer will bring in the materials, or the customer finishes the board, or is it all finished like start to finish in your factory? My, 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 yeah, almost almost everything is from start to finish. Um, water sports, we we tend to pack in the boxes, then turn up in the retail store. Um, through distribution yeah. in automotive it got delivered to the customer um, assembly lines I mean when we make mirror housings or spoilers or so has to still be assembled on the cars uh, but no we tend to to do everything from beginning to end um, every time a customer provide a material consignment we call it it's always a problem yeah okay <laughs> yeah doesn't come on time quality and this and that I mean does not mean that we don't have material shortage ourselves or our, when, when we order material we get good quality all the time it's not the case but then we are in direct in direct contact with suppliers and then we can solve it a lot faster yeah um so um we don't like it too much when customer uh, provide us with, with materials you always run into trouble one way or the other yeah so it's all about sort of having having control over basically the whole process and then you just the customer pays the money, you get yeah. the job done, and then you give the you give it board, mm -hmm. and you hope that that quality control is there throughout your process, and you don't have anything that's sort of going to vary from that. Yeah, yeah. I guess that's a, that's a good way to be. And what so with stand up paddling and like the sports that I sort of do, is there any brands that like the people would know out there that you are manufacturing and you're allowed to tell us about? Yeah, I, 
I don't think it's a secret. I mean, we we built for Starboard, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> Name them first. Um, then uh, pretty much every windsurfing brand that does sta uh, standard paddling is 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 making with us. So you go from Fanatic, um, JP, RD, Quattro Goya. Um, I'm in trouble. I must have forgotten someone. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm sure. Tabu, I'm not sure that they got Nash. Um, uh, how can you forget them? Yeah. Um, so uh, those are the windsurfing brands. Um, as we build most of, for most of the windsurfing brands anyway, when they do standard paddling, they, they build it with us. And then you go to the um, people coming from the surf side, like uh, SurfTech, NSP. Um, there's a few other companies, but um, they they more like a collection of brands, a distributor. So um, skip those. Uh, we that currently that must be it. I don't think we have any specific stand-up paddling brand left out there. Is there any? So do you do obviously surfing as well? Is there a lot of surfing brands that come yeah. through there as well? Like I don't know the big major yeah. brands that you see on the CT and that sort of thing. They have yeah. those type of brands as well. Yeah, I mean um, for the for the public, they probably know most is maybe Hayden Shapes. Um, that's also the brand which um, had made shapers uh, realize that they they can have an, a slightly easier life yeah. living on up on uh, royalties. And Hayden is a really good marketing person as well. He himself, yeah. so um, his uh, his boards uh, sold uh, worldwide. Really, a lot of them. Um, Hayden Shapes is, is definitely up there. Then we make boards for JS for DHD. Um, plenty of other brands in Australia. Uh, I mean, we make all the boards for for TSA and um, yeah, GSI. Uh, they they in a transition period at the moment. Then uh, uh, via SurfTech, they do a couple of brands. Jerry Lopez is out there. Uh, Donald Takayama. Um, Walden, who else? Uh, Sharp Eye, they do. Must have forgotten a couple more. <laughs> yeah, so there's a hell of a lot of brands that are coming through all the time. So, how many brands would you have buying from you at, at one time? Like, would there be a hundred brands, hundred and fifty brands? Like, is it no, no? Like, I think we have we have roughly fifty customers, but yep. some of the customers have multiple brands. I okay. Mean, like, or or. GSI, uh, TSA, they manage multiple brands. Is it no, but across the across the whole network? So, like from from surfboards to cars, like how many? Is it about 50, 50 customers? Yeah, fifty was water sports. Automotive is less than ten. Yeah, and the non water sports, yeah, they're still a bit project based. So, call it another less than ten at the moment. Yeah. Mm. And then how many products would you have going through Cobra, say, each day or each week? Like, how many, like, finished products would you have pushing out each week? I mean, if you count in pieces, annual volume, let's take last year. This year, who, nobody knows how it will be this year. But last year, I would say 
let's let's not count fins and let's not count board bags <laughs> or foot straps. Yeah. You can uh, skew the numbers, but between water sports, boards, uh, automotive parts, and the uh, the others, the architectural construction things together, two hundred, a bit more than two hundred thousand pieces in the year. In wow, the that's year. a lot. Mm. And they so they're all just individual piece from different brands there must be a lot of lot of boards being sold around the world a lot of the time because I, I don't know necessarily any of these numbers yeah. normally so it it's i guess it's still cool to hear so many people are getting out onto the water and paddling and, and doing different sports mm. do you paddle yourself yeah windsurfs in the world since i was young started okay. with windsurfing uh kayaking uh stand up paddling obviously when it came out uh never tried uh kiteboarding <laughs> tried yeah. surfing times but there's not really waves or here in thailand a little bit um but it's a bit far away from where i live so yeah. haven't have not managed to surf a wave standing up yet i did it on a stand-up paddle a few times yeah <laughs> but, but you haven't probably on, paddled a board, in. on a on a big board not yeah. not on that surf, surf sub things can't do that yeah. <laughs> went out once but uh yeah got just just got crushed back in um, tried the uh, uh, foiling um, electric boards lately. Yeah, um, and that's been fun. Yeah, hurt my hurt my ribs for uh, six weeks after that. Oh, did you do oh. like inter intercostal muscle or something in the ribs? Yeah, yeah. yeah lucky not, nothing broke, but yeah, it was uh, just fall fall on my face um, in in the water. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun, but yeah. I, we got a crazy Italian in the factory, um, Ricardo, uh, <laughs> okay. Olympian. For him, everything is easy. Uh, he's yeah. a good windsurfer. He surfs. He's, uh, he, I haven't seen him stand up paddling properly, but windsurfing, surfing, kiteboarding. And then these, these motorized boards come out, and uh, he just mastered it in, in seconds. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, uh, teach me next time. So it's like, yep, okay, here's the. The button push on two and three and then you stand up and then you go yeah so i did that and after two days the second day fall crashed and so on yeah. and only then I, I watched a video that teaches you how to do it and then first thing put a helmet on yeah i didn't have one <laughs> second put an impact vest oh that would have been handy <laughs> yeah and then third, you start lying down and then you slowly sit up and then uh, you you try on that uh, position kneeling to uh, to foil and then come back down a few times so you get used to the feeling. Yeah, yeah. with Ricardo, no, you just stand up and you go. Then. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of people make that mistake, especially with foiling. They don't go through the process and they don't actually go out and behind the jet ski or behind yeah. the bubble with the motorized stuff coming. Because the hardest thing is to learn how to bring it down. Like once you get it up, it wants to fly. So you've got to be able to bring it down and keep it under control. Uh, one question yeah. I did want to ask. So if you were like a... I don't know, a brand out there and you wanted to get in contact with you guys and you wanted to start making a production line. How is it hard to do that? Or is it, you guys are open to having a conversation with anybody? We, we're pretty open. We're pretty yeah. open. You can just check our website, send an email through that. But most of the time, if it's the water sports side, um, people would just email or give us a call. Or uh, The world is small. I mean, it seems everyone knows each other. Yeah, um, it does. Especially after uh, I started this thing, it feels like I know everybody, or somebody knows somebody that I want to speak to. It's pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, but uh, we are pretty picky in that sense. Um, we uh, we probably get an inquiry if it's not this year, in the last few years, at least once, one per week. 
Yeah. So we call at least 50 new brands who want to work with us every year. And typically two or three come through. And that's already, already between windsurf, standard paddling, surfing. All that together. Motorized boards a bit more lately. Yeah. But uh, yeah, two or three new customers a year maximum. And do you actually like diversify what you do very often? Like I know you do those three main um, production types, but do you mm. ever look at another one and go, oh, maybe we can do that one as well and we might put some time into that or you just stick to what you're good at? Mm -hmm. No, you, you always have to look for it in uh, automotive. Um, but um, we, we look for something that is not too different. So in the automotive side, we're looking for aerospace parts. Uh, basically, it's the same production process. In uh, water sports, once um, we got into electric and motorized boards, we thought that uh, drones are actually not too far. We see a lot of common things putting electronics into, into a, a board or into a composite shell. And we found that a lot of those people don't know enough about composites. They're really good at computer, at electronics. But when it comes to uh, composites, more than once we have seen a product from a customer that comes super heavy or they just don't even know what kind of layout, where to start. And we do a lot of uh, composite design, composite engineering for them. Yeah. Uh, so that, that, that seems to be a growing area. So anything that you need a composite body for anything electronics. So uh, and not too high volume, not uh, hundred thousands. <laughs> That's yeah. a bit too much for us um, and then the uh, the construction side that's just yeah we built bigger and bigger products we built boats and from boats it it became uh, uh, construction parts um, production process is the same thing boards are large we have one building in the back of the company which can accommodate uh, large construction parts so it's it's looking at into new things but um, it's there is some it's, it's always something similar we haven't really jumped into something completely different yeah, it's obviously a, bit, a lot more risky than just like sort of separating things a little bit but yeah. do you do you work with plastics as well we have a few plastic injection machines um yeah. in-house uh and we thought that because uh, you see new composite technology uh where you combine composite with plastic you call it called over molding but then you change the resin as well from thermoplastic uh, thermoset into thermoplastic resin, so you um, you process it differently. Yeah. yeah, we're looking at that as well. Maybe one one interesting thing that we have been doing since four or five years ago is that we we have found that when we step outside of water sports, uh, many customers actually do not understand composites, but yeah. They are, they are designers and our engineers don't know enough of product design. They, they're too square-headed. They, they're too much of an engineer. Yeah. So we started uh, or we changed the R&D department because we realized we don't do much research. That's what our suppliers do for us. But we do a lot of development, process development and product development. But uh, we added the element of design so we call it the design and development center. And we started yeah. hiring product designers and uh, composite engineers who does engineering design to, uh, to be the people who work with the customer. 
there's not that many product designers out there in the world who, who works with composites. So we think we just train them ourselves and let them yeah. talk the same language with the customer. And that has been very fruitful. I mean, plenty of playing projects so far, but uh, you start, we start to catch a name out there and um, uh, the experience in working with these people and every now and then a, a good product comes through actually. So that's, yeah, that's a nice. I did see that. Nice. I did see that on your website, obviously, you, then you're now doing more of a development side of, the, of it as well. Like you're not just getting the order and going, Here, what, here's what you do. You're actually getting involved in the design process now as well and helping your customers get that, I guess, that next design out there. And Because sometimes I know like for me, even like when we're doing designs with Starboard or whatever, and we're trying to design things, you, you, you've got it in here and then it's like, you've got to explain it to make it down there. And it's just like, sometimes it's a little yeah. bit difficult, but mm. something I really enjoy yeah. to do. So going forward for the next, uh, I don't know, 10 years or however long that you're still working with Cobra, what, what are the things that you want to sort of see happen? And is there anything that you want to move into or change or sort of make more exciting? Mm -hmm. uh, building on this design development, um, we now have further developed uh, what we call project management. So um, we have seen that uh, now, now we can assist customers with design and development work. But uh, what was still a bit of weakness is project management. And sometimes it's on the customer side, not yeah. us. And in the past, we were like, yeah, but if you are late, what, what can I do? But to a point where we have seen that leaving it also to the customer, to some of them, if, if the customer are not, is not professional enough, then in the end, we, we lost the opportunity for business as well. So yeah. we, we have now set up a project management I just cleared my the area in front of my office. Uh, I grabbed Olivier, my right-hand man, back from the automotive side about six months ago yeah. and uh, tasked him with uh, the job of this uh, product, new new projects, the non-water sports stuff. And uh, we have pulled uh, three different um, project and design teams we had together in front of the room. So yeah. this is their new office. So that's my... Or oh, I, I, I wish it is mine, but yeah. no, Olivier is really having fun there every day at the moment, and I'm observing it. Yeah. <laughs> Still need yeah. to do all the other management work myself, but it's really exciting. I think this is uh, we just we just had a record-breaking uh, project where in two weeks uh, from the first conversation with a customer on Monday tomorrow, and that, that's pretty much two weeks we will actually have the first peat out of, out, out of the mold. And the customer already won, has already an order of 250 pieces. It's uh, actually a gate, we call it a COVID gate, Some, uh, a gate you walk through, which will automatically measure your, your temperature and yeah, spray okay. something and so on. Yeah. will probably be a lot of demand for that. <laughs> but that, that is because of this strict project management uh, we have implemented now. It's really, really good need to find a way to put that back into the water sports side. Um, yeah. We are <clears throat> still pretty slow and um, according to some customer bureaucracy <laughs> when it comes to uh, setting up, I mean, lots of specs to be signed and so on. Uh, yeah. We want to simplify that as well. But uh, yeah, project management is one thing. Then um, we are going through a second wave of um, productivity improvement in the factory. So when we what we did in 2004 to about 2008, the three, four years back then, uh, what we call the lean lines. 
that's basically just changed from a big line to a small line. But uh, in, since about October last year, we have hired a few new uh, people, production and process engineering managers uh, team between the automotive and the water sports. And uh, these people come with a real automotive lean background. And in as little as seven months, we have already seen a lot of productivity improvements. I'm yeah. really happy. It's for the first time someone in the factory sing the same song as I do. <laughs> My yeah. own professor. In fact, they are met, they're even better than me. They, they, yeah. They've been practicing this. Uh, I haven't. I did it in, as a study, but mm, didn't really master it um, in, in, at work. So that's, uh, that should see us uh, uh, going through a few things. We are moving from what we call the lean lines. So it was a big line. Uh, it's a lean line, 100 meter thing, but there's still 50 people in the line. We're putting it now down to a cell of as low as six people in a cell. Yeah. And uh, want to see that uh, that can work more efficient, a and it will. I mean, in a sense, it's nothing new for uh, custom serve people around the world. I mean, to make one custom board, it yeah. doesn't touch. It's, it's not more than five or six people touching the board anyway. Mm. You have a shaper, you have a glasser, maybe a CNC guy, um, laminator. It's not not that many. Um, yeah. And uh, we have, because we were so big, we, we took the, the, the line, the small line, the lean line is still big compared to a cell like that. And we are exploring it now. You require employees with a lot more skills um, than if someone is only sanding, um, yeah. for example. But uh, we, are, we want to take up the challenge. We think it will be more productive and uh, also should be a way where we can then implement better skill, pay for skill and pay for performance. In Australia, for example, I guess everyone in the industry is getting paid per piece. For yeah. us, it's still a salary. So it's a quite a bit of a different mentality. But to yeah. jump to a piece, piece rate, um, they need skills first. So, um, but if we can go to some sort of a semi-system or a piece rate even, then I, I think employees will be more productive and they will earn more as well. So I think it's a win-win thing. So that's, that's number two. And then number three, yeah, still business development. But um, we spoke about it already yeah. quite a bit. The last one is maybe the hardest one. And uh, that's uh, where I still have to drive a lot of it is in terms of sustainability. And we, we have, or I, I had it in my mind already when I was young. I mean, I, I wanted to actually study environmental and, uh, science, but with my father having the factory, he, I said, okay, good, I'll do engineering um, yeah. to run the factory. Uh, and when I was in Germany, did my master's degree, I had a class with, or I actually did not have the class, I was back in Thailand, but there was a class with uh, Professor Braungart, the guy who invented the concept of cradle to cradle, which led to circular economy uh, nowadays. That's one part of, his, uh, of the concept he had, he had yeah. created back then. Um, my friend told me about it. I found it so fascinating to a point where I just went to see him at his office. Yeah. We became good friends. He came by our factories a few times, keep seeing him. I still think that's um, still the only uh, concept of 
product design I have seen so far that is truly sustainable. It's yeah. uh, thinking about a product, uh, about its next life, cradle to cradle, um, not cradle to grave, as we are designing the products nowadays. But to implement something like that in the composite industry is such a challenge. I mean, we, we, we basically use thermoset, and as soon as the resin cured, is pretty much not much you can do. Um, and with fibers inside, it's, um, it's especially strong. And then yeah. you can also try to burn it and so on. It, it, nothing works actually. So as an industry, we are pretty bad industry. I mean, compared to where uh, people talk about plastics and so on, I have to say from an environmental impact, we're probably worse. At least in the, the plastic industry, if you manage it well, there's a chance you can recycle things. With uh, composite at the moment, it's, it's not that easy. We, um, we, we have just uh, finished a development with Starboard uh, uh, as well and with MFC, um, utilizing a new type of resin, which um, you can actually uh, turn the resin into a thermoplastic and reuse it as thermoplastic. Um, follow uh, Cobra's uh, Instagram or Facebook, and then uh, we will launch that in Two weeks time, you will see uh, Paolo talk about it in detail. Okay. Uh, I think we put a press release out already. We are we are uh, fighting for an innovation award at the moment with um, the Composite Asso Association (JEC). Um, but this is uh, this could change things. This is something mm. you can actually recycle properly. But to uh, to go as far as a, a real sustainable, it's still a long way to go. Um, uh, it's it's the whole system, how you get the product back. And it's not just resin and fiber in the board. You have inserts, you have um, all sorts of other things, the foam inside. And once you put it all in, a, in, in the same board, how can you dismantle it? It's, it's not going to be an easy job. So that's, yeah. that's going to be a longer challenge, but it's definitely in the forefront. Uh, the product itself, um, outside of that, the, the factory, yeah, been uh, doing lots of, lots of things. We reduced electricity consumption over the years by more than half. Water consumption we have cut by 80%, um, doing, having all sorts of different investment in doing so. We are still on the grid, um, considering going with solar cell, but um, the, the regulation inside the industrial estate still doesn't really support that much. We would need to be, we cannot connect it back to on the, onto the grid which just makes it a lot more um, uh, difficult and expensive than it should be. Yeah. Um, we have planted uh, 2,000 trees in the factory. The target uh, now is one employee, one tree. Yeah. So, um, and, and lots of green areas in the factory and lots and lots of other uh, projects. If anyone is interested, just can again check out the, uh, the website. We have a sustainability report, which we we conduct on ourselves, so we just disclose what we are doing. Already three, four years in a row, so all documented there. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And the, the website is um, www.cobrainter.com. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's quite cool to hear, obviously, the sustainability stuff and, and the cycle, life cycle of products, and the, and the circular life. I think you were talking about with it. I was glad you explained it because I didn't really know what you were talking about when you first started talking about it. But what would you say is your biggest um, success and your biggest failure, if you had to name 
two things because obviously in business not all things go well all the time same as racing same mm. as anything in life is that like we've got that journey that we go through what what would you say your one or two of your biggest successes and, and maybe one of your failures as well mm. um i would say looking onto the factory what i have introduced them the lean lines going from the big line to the small line has probably been the, the single most important thing yeah um I still, as I said, I still don't think people actually realize it. Even employees um, got a lot of fight back back then. But once you got used to it, you don't think anymore. How, how can we carry 450 kilometers of boards every single day? How many people would have done, would, would have we utilized for that? And then other benefits of multiple skills and then people fight less uh, between departments and so on. But that's, you, you get used to a new thing so easily. Yeah, but if I have to name one thing, that's probably the most important one. Um, difficult to go to uh, to pick a second one, but the uh, the, the product design, uh, uh, design and development together with project management is is very exciting. Yeah, um, it start to bear fruits, so I, I hope that will be a second biggest uh, success, and then just on it from a timing. Uh, point of view, the sustainability I hope will be the third success I could record still in my career life. Yeah. Uh, failure? Poof, too many. <laughs> <laughs> we, um, uh, it's not so easy. I mean, I, I got thrown into a position, CEO position when I was 26. And uh, I, I have done a lot of activities when I was in school and university, I ran a couple of clubs, uh, even um, uh, on a country scale. Um, I was an interactor, road director, work part as a rotary today. Um, so I, I do have some experience from, from that, but still, I mean, 5,000 people. And um, uh, in a time where we got a recession right away, the first few years of a CEO, I was the bad guy. Um, it was all because of my failure that the company failed, uh, that they got less bonus, that uh, we the market collapsed, that you name it. We, we had a lot of uh, fight with employees, with the union, and it went on until I would say about five years ago, so about 10 years, the relationship with the union, with the employee was not good. Um, I, right now, it's it's running really well. I think finally, everyone seemed to understand uh, what what I meant to do. Yeah, um, I have a pretty good relationship with employees nowadays. But that was tough times, and um, nothing is as easy as the solution to the problem of yesterday. But yeah. going back in time, I probably could have done it much better. But yeah, you will always get wiser afterwards so that's yeah, well, probably one of the biggest failure yeah coming in as a young ceo at 26 that's that's a that's an early age to be sort of running a company and having to deal with um unions and industrial relations issues and trying to make sure everyone's yeah. happy into a gfc which is probably one of the hardest mm. times um, a lot of the generations have seen so it must have been a mm. very difficult experience but um the peak was when our employees actually blocked the highway near the factory yeah it's a uh, oh how many lanes three six ten lane uh highway with the um highway on top the one you would have yeah. gone through it already another six lanes on top 
So that 16 lane got completely blocked by our employee. Oh, wow. And so they blocked, uh, they blocked the, the lower road and the high road. Yes. It's wow. at the end of, of the high road coming in, coming down. Yeah. yeah. So, um, and uh, the, the province governor uh, got me out there and we were negotiating on the highway. They got so, chairs under the, uh, the pedestrian bridge uh, to get some shade, sat there. I mean, they blocked it for 10 hours or something, the whole afternoon to the evening. Yeah. <laughs> that was the, the peak. <laughs> oh, geez, that must have been an interesting situation to have to deal with. Oh, yeah. Fun times, though. But, but, but one last question I really want to ask is, like, when you're dealing with people and you're trying to manage people, like, that must be a really big part of your job. And actually allowing yeah. other people to be accountable for their own actions and actually controlling their own departments and you allowing yourself not to micromanage and actually allow people to, to commit to their job, even though ultimately it probably is your responsibility to make sure that it's going well. How do you find to, to have that trust in people and how do you train people to make sure that the product comes out the way it should and you have that quality control throughout the line and you're able to control without forcing somebody to do it? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I tend to allow people to work and make mistakes. And I'm someone who can trust other people relatively easy. My motto is that you either trust them, then, then you utilize them, you let them do their job. As soon as you don't trust someone, then you have to kick the guy out of the company. It's no point. So if you haven't kicked someone out yet, you have to trust him. So yeah. um, I, I don't find it too difficult letting go or assigning work. My weakness is more the control <laughs> side. Yeah. And uh, I, I tend to prefer to work with people who has responsibility, who then come back, report when things are, are wrong or when they need advice and so on. It's not always the case, um, but also because there's too many things happening in the same time. Uh, you, you cannot, just naturally, you cannot be a perfectionist. Yeah. If, if I want to try to become a perfectionist, uh, expect every everyone to do the job always correctly and 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 on time and everything then then I'll probably either go crazy or i have to do everything myself which is not physically possible so um a lot of patience a lot of uh, uh trying out learning uh trying by by learning by trial yeah um allowing mistakes i keep saying if, if you do a mistake once absolutely no problem lesson learned how you correct it next time if you keep doing the same mistakes more than one, then there's a problem. Either you haven't found the real root cause, so typically also a second round of, of uh, uh, chances there to, to go and maybe go deeper. The, root, the real root cause might have been deeper, that's why five times. So working a bit in a coaching style. But uh, yeah, on, on the other hand, you do need people who are to an extent good enough uh, for the job. So training is a, is a, is a big part of it. We, we are not too good yet in training. Yeah. So been an area we, we are trying to work on, but, um, yeah, so it looks more like, yep. Uh, allowing a lot of people to, to take decision, to do it, encourage them to, to take decisions, which is typically not enough. People don't step up, uh, too often. This is talking about my experience in Cobra the last 15 years and uh, be patient and then try to build them up. So it's, just, it's not for the lack of delegation or allowing people to do, it's probably more for not controlling enough and yeah. then 
it's a dilemma between how much more you control versus how much time you actually have physically, but everything still need to go on. <laughs> and, you, and you just briefly mentioned yeah. something about training and you said you haven't really focused on that. Have you seen that by training people it helps them or do you find that if you upskill someone, they move on or is it, it what, if you are upskilling people, is that important to obviously create the processes and make them better yeah. for your, for your business or is it something where yeah. you haven't really probably focused on as enough and you should do more or, or what do you think on that, on that yeah. topic? I once read uh, someone, not not quite a joke, um, but the CFO asked the CEO, what if we train the people and they leave us? And the CEO replied, what if we don't train and they stay? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, no, it's not for the lack of training that, that what I mentioned earlier. Uh, we try, but we are not good at it yet. I think we, we try to train them, but the training is not effective. The... The, uh, the courses we, we intend, the, um, the, the, uh, the people we selected, the method of training, these are not effective enough. We still have okay. supervisors who are not good enough as a supervisor. We have managers who are not good enough yet. Um, whereas when it comes to skill training, I think we are a lot better there in the past. Uh, so, but uh, it is important and uh, you cannot think that uh, you, you train and then you might lose the people. We have had a lot of cases like that, but but really, like that CEO said, <laughs> what if we yes. don't train it today? That's yeah. a really good way to look at it. I've, I haven't heard that quote before, but I'm sure I'm going to use it now. Mm. And it, yeah, it resonates yeah. quite well with it because you're like, yeah, you can. If you don't train them, they're going to stay and they're going to do a shit job. So you've got to make sure that they're doing they're doing a good job for you as long as they're there, and that's the most important thing. So, um, is there anything yeah. you wanted to add before we jumped off air? Is there any things that we can um, obviously we added your website before? What was your Instagram that you were mentioning? Uh, Cobra International, know. probably something like that. Yeah, yeah. we got LinkedIn, we got Facebook, and we got IG, something Cobra International. Yeah. <laughs> Well, mate, I really appreciate your time today. It's been um, great talking to you about obviously all the processes, the different brands you work with and just like all those key um, things that we've, we've spoken about in this conversation. So I really appreciate your time. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, Thanks it was fun. Um, no. Yeah, no worries. Well, yeah, I really appreciate your time. And thanks to everyone who has been watching these. Um, Apple Podcasts, Spotify to listen, and Facebook, Michael Booth and, and Boothcast uh, to watch the videos. If you have any suggestions and you want to get somebody on the show, please let me know and I'll be doing lots of these. So thank you so much again and I'll, um, I'll talk to you very soon. Cheers. Okay, bye-bye.